Good morning again, everyone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of having and reading your word. We praise you that as saints gathered here with millions of others around the world on this Sunday, we are sitting under your word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll help us understand and seek to obey. Father, we thank you above all things for Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, it's a really exciting time to be in ministry among Muslim people. Uh, there's a growing uh, body of research that suggests that things are happening among Muslim people all over the world uh, that haven't happened since Islam existed uh, when it was created in the 7th century. Uh, Sally and I have the privilege of knowing uh, lots of people from a Muslim background. Sometimes we call them BMBs, believers from a Muslim background. Uh, they're from all different countries uh, and some of them were really strict and some of them were, you know, kind of barely Muslim at all, I guess you could say, religiously, but perhaps culturally, very much a part of that world. One of the guys that we've gotten to know uh, in the last little while, uh, and this has been a great blessing to us, is a man named Yasser. He's from Egypt. Uh, he was involved in the protests that began the revolution in 2011. You remember we saw on the news uh, people in the, the big squares in Cairo there in Egypt uh, battling with police, and uh, there's a really big evangelical church uh, right near that big square, which is called Freedom Square, ironically. Uh, and one of the things that Yasser saw during that time was Christian people from that church helping the people involved in the protests indiscriminately, regardless of whether they were Christian or Muslim or anything else. They didn't ask. They were giving out water. They, were, they had Christian doctors there um, treating people who were suffering from injuries or dehydration or shock. Uh, and they actually, at several points, protected the protesters from the police, physically. Now, he thought at that point, Yasser, he thought, who are these Christian people that they would, without asking us who we are, most of us are Muslim, obviously, involved in this thing, uh, seek to look after us in that way. He'd been on a journey for quite some time, but that was a huge moment in his journey towards Christ. And just a couple of years later, he was baptised in that same church, that big evangelical church. At first, he just went up and said, I want to be baptised. And the, the pastor there said, okay, well, what do you know about Jesus? And he said, nothing. And um, the guy said, well, I'm not going to baptise you. You don't know anything about Jesus. Yasser knew he wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't know anything about him. The pastor said, we're not interested in numbers here. We're not trying to just get as many Muslims in as we can. What we're interested in is people having a real faith in Jesus, the real Jesus. So you need to learn about him. Over three months, he sat there and he went to, uh, you know, kind of like a baptism course or a discipleship course uh, and ultimately was, was baptised. And he's now living in Australia, um, having been given a protection visa by uh, the Australian government because he faces some really serious persecution there in Egypt, as many, um, as many believers from a Muslim background do. It feels like God is doing a great work and a new thing, actually, among Muslim people around the world. And I've chosen this passage from Acts 11 today because I think in it we see God doing a new movement, see a new movement start under him among Gentiles, 
among non-Jews. So really, this part of Acts 11 is our story, by which I mean any of us here who are not from Jewish heritage. Uh, Statistics tell me that's probably all of us, actually. There's very few people with Jewish heritage in, in Christian churches in Australia, although there are some, so if that's you, I don't mean to generalize and roll all over the top of that. But I'm a Gentile and most of us here are as well. And this is the start of our story really in God's kingdom. Uh, So we're going to look at verse 19 and following from uh, Acts chapter 11. And to set the scene, we're told in uh, that first verse there, 19, that after the death of Stephen, who died in uh, chapter 7, uh, the, uh, the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem spread out. They become refugees, essentially, uh, because a persecution grows in Jerusalem. Uh, The Jewish leaders start to really attack them. And so they spread out, and we're told in verse 19 they go as far as Phoenicia, which is modern Lebanon, Cyprus, in a big island in the middle middle of the Mediterranean there, and Antioch. Has anyone heard of Antioch? Can you put your hand up if you've heard of Antioch? Can anyone tell me a fact about this city, Antioch? Anything? A seaport, close, it was on a river uh, called the Orontes, but it's, no, it's, it's not right on the, on the sea, but close by. It was a real hub, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Antioch was the third city of the Roman Empire at this time. Rome, obviously, Alexandria, northern Egypt, Antioch. Like... I've heard of it, but what else? Nothing. I don't know anything else about it. Uh, it's, it's in southern Turkey now, and it's never been excavated. which is, It's buried, never been dug up. Part of the reason we don't really have it on our radars. Otherwise, it would be like one of those great uh, ancient ruined cities that's been you know, exposed to archaeological research. I think it was ravaged by earthquakes, and then after several hundred years of that, after this time... They just walked away. They said, that's it, we're cutting our losses and we're going to move somewhere else. But at this time, it was a massive city. Half a million people, which in in the time that we're talking about was effectively a mega city. It was a mostly Gentile city, not Jewish, not in Jewish territory. It's up north uh, and probably a little Jewish population, perhaps 10%, although probably less. Uh, And... It was a really key city, it was a hub for trade and culturally. And they go there, these uh, Jewish Christians, and they start speaking the message of Jesus. But you notice at the end of verse 19, we're told, they started speaking the message of Jesus, but only to Jews. They would have gone to the synagogue in the Jewish quarter and preached the gospel in the synagogue. What gospel would they have preached? Jesus is the promised Messiah the anointed king, and then they would have got the role of who was in different houses, perhaps in the synagogue, and gone around knocking on doors, hello Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so and your children, can we tell you about Jesus the Messiah? He fulfills all of our prophecies, right? Fantastic. But a new movement actually starts, something new starts in Antioch, this city, uh, that's actually not for Jews, And four things happen, four new things. The first thing is new missionaries come, and then a new church forms. 
The new church gets a new reputation in the community. And finally, a new fellowship springs up between old believers and new in this city of Antioch. So the first new thing, verse 20, some missionaries come, and they're they're Jews, they're Jewish men, perhaps women as well, who come from Cyprus and from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. It's uh, it's modern-day Libya. And they arrive in Antioch, and they start preaching, we're told in verse 20, to Greeks, which means non-Jews. They don't go to the synagogue and then knock on the Jewish doors in that quarter of town. They go to the Greeks. And this is huge. This is a massive new thing. Uh, I'm a fairly self-centered person. Perhaps you are too. Uh, And so I think everything's intended for me. Of course the gospel of Jesus is for me. That's obvious, right? Um, I'm a Gentile. I know it's a Jewish gospel and that the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, are thoroughly Jewish, but I also know through the scriptures that the plan was always for God to bless all the nations. We've got to remember that in this time, this was a very new way of thinking. There were hints of it in the Old Testament, like we read from in Isaiah, and the Psalms, and some of the other prophets, but they didn't have the New Testament at this point. And these Jewish Christians came and started speaking to non-Jews, telling the story from the Jewish scriptures of a promised Jewish king, the Messiah, who the prophet said would come one day to the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, and die and rise from the dead in fulfillment of those prophecies. It's all Jewish, and they come and start preaching to Greeks. So we've got to try and get our head around the fact that this is a really new thing. But they do it deliberately. They think out of the box. And actually, it's not just innovative thinking. Actually, they have a deep understanding of God's purposes in the world. And they're heroes, these people. We don't know anything about them except what we just read. But they start, for the first time, deliberately preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And that's the start of a huge movement of God in the world. So that's the first thing, new missionaries come, and as a result of their ministry, a new church forms. Verse 21 says, a great number of people believe as a result of this preaching, and a new church forms, and it would have been mostly Gentile people. Some Jews in the church, I'm sure, as there were virtually everywhere the gospel was preached, uh, but a majority of the church would have been Gentile people. And they, you've got to remember, they dressed differently to Jews, they, they ate, had different food rules. They'd come from backgrounds of totally different gods, many of these people, pagans. And here they were, worshipping the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So that's the second thing, a new church forms. Uh, and it's a Gentile church, and so what you see in uh, verse 22 is that news reaches Jerusalem about this new church. Uh, Jerusalem is where Peter, James and John and the, the core of that, those first Christians, all Jewish, where they've remained while some others have spread out, as we know, and news gets to them and they think, bit sus. There's something happening in Antioch, big city, bigger than Jerusalem, bunch of Gentiles gathering in the name of Jesus, we have to send someone up there. So they send Barnabas, he goes up as a kind of you know, detective type, 
he's a trusted man in the church, a Jewish man, to check out what's happening. And when he investigates, in verse 23, it says, When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas gets there and he takes one look at this little gathering and he says, this is the real thing. God's at work here. Now that's a big moment because he could have said, well, I know they're talking about Jesus, but they're not like us. But he didn't do that. He rejoiced and recognized it for what it was, which is a real work of God's Spirit among the Gentiles. This was Christ-centered evangelism leading to a Christ-centered church. And we know Barnabas was right because we're told in verse 24 he was a good man. No one else in Acts is called a good man, just Barnabas. And this is God's way of drawing our attention to him and saying, you know what, I put my stamp of approval on Barnabas he got his report back to the Jerusalem church right. Uh, you know, Sally and I this year have visited a bunch of churches. Um, we have seven partner churches, including St. Stephen's, um, who are partnered with us in our ministry and were with us while we were overseas. Um, and in visiting different churches, including some others that we visit, um, that we're not partnered with, but who we go and visit or, uh, or speak at briefly or something, and our own experience in churches, I've noticed something about evangelism. Evangelism is very important to me because that's my job title, an evangelist. Uh, and the thing I've noticed about evangelism is that quite often when people talk about evangelism, actually they're talking about something else, which is inviting I'm a huge fan of inviting. I feel like part of what I want to be as a Christian is just an inviter. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kick a soccer ball with Luke in the park or something. I'll invite the neighbours to come along and do that on a Saturday afternoon. Um, the church is running Alpha. I'll invite you know, my neighbours or a, a friend from work or something to come along to Alpha. Inviting has got to be a basic part of what we do, right? And if this is a family and people are welcome to join us, then part of that is bringing people along. Um, so I'm a huge fan of inviting, but inviting is not evangelism. Evangelism is telling someone some aspect of the truth of the gospel, what God's done for us in Christ, explicitly. And I think what's happened in some places is that because when people think about evangelism, what they're really thinking about is inviting, they think, if I, what I need to do with my friends is, all I need to do is just invite them to church. And then the preacher will do the evangelism. Now, not all of us are gifted by God as evangelists, and that's okay. But I think it's important that we're clear about what we're doing. Are we inviting or are we doing evangelism? Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because Muslim people, in general, are not going to come to our churches. There's a lot of um, cultural reasons that limit their freedom to come to church. You know, probably know that Muslim people are not allowed to drink alcohol or eat pork and there's other certain things that, they're, you know, that are required of them. And 
coming onto a church property is kind of in the same category. Uh, For a lot of Muslims, most Muslims, even in Australia, who are pretty kind of westernised, coming to a church, even if it's pretty low-key and welcoming, very welcoming like this, it's not in an intimidating cross-shaped building, um, even when it's like this, it's very modern and welcoming and we're dressed in kind of, you know, for most Muslim people, they're just not going to make it. We're on church property. This is an explicitly Christian event and it's just too hard. Now, here's the problem. If church is the only place where you can hear the gospel about Jesus, it's the only place where evangelism happens, and Muslim people aren't going to come to church for whatever reason, then they're never going to hear the gospel. So, I think, and this is Sally and my kind of real passion, that we need to think when we're reaching Muslims and people from other subcultures in Sydney who aren't necessarily going to come to our churches, that we need to think like missionaries rather than the old-style parish minister. You know the old-style parish minister? Graham can tell us. This is his vintage, right? (laughs) Sorry. No, you're, you know, you're in the English village and the church is on a hill and you ring the bell and the whole village comes up to church, right? We haven't, we haven't done that uh, for generations, really. And I'm glad because the expectation that you can just ring a bell and everyone will flock in and hear the gospel uh, every week or morning and evening uh, is not a reality now and it hasn't been for decades in Australia, if not more. We need to have the exact opposite way of thinking to that, which is missionary thinking. I'm going to go to them, onto their turf, and share the gospel with them in a way that they can understand and to some degree play by their rules to get a hearing for the gospel. That's that's the way missionaries think all around the world. They don't assume that people will come to them. And I think with Muslims here, and not just Muslims, others, perhaps even people from an from an Anglo background, who are completely unchurched and are just never going to walk onto our properties. As a group, that's the way we need to think. Not that every individual needs to do that, necessarily, because we're all gifted in different ways. But that as a group, having that missionary mindset will enable people to hear the gospel who otherwise are just never going to hear it. We all want Muslims to hear the gospel but we shouldn't require that they jump through our cultural hoops in order to have a chance to repent and believe. And my prayer, and Sally's, is that as that happens and Muslim people come to Christ, little gatherings of Muslims will form, believing Muslims. They might be in homes, uh, they might look different to what we're used to in church, but they'll be gathered around the Lord Jesus and there'll be a real work of God's Holy Spirit. I really hope that when that happens, and it's starting to happen now actually, there are these fellowships of ex-Muslims who are following Christ, that even if their groups aren't what we're used to, that unfamiliar in whatever way, that we'll be like Barnabas and we'll recognise those things for what they are, a true work of God. So then Barnabas, in our story, if we return to Acts, he goes, this is a real thing, uh, and I'm going to go up to Tarsus, which is a bit further north in Turkey, uh, to get Saul, Saul who becomes Paul, 
He's already had his conversion experience in chapter 9. And I can just imagine Barnabas saying to Saul, didn't Jesus tell you you were supposed to be the gospel to the, the apostle, rather to the Gentiles? Well, you're not going to believe what's going on in Antioch. You've got to get down here because this is the real thing. It's starting to happen, right? And we don't want to let it go past us. So he brings uh, Saul down and they stay there for a year, we're told, in verse 26, meeting with the church, they're teaching the church and doing evangelism in the public space, doing the ministry of the gospel. And eventually Barnabas and Paul set out on what we know as Paul's first missionary journey, the two of them. This church commissions them and sends them out to go and share the gospel with the nations, all through what we know as modern Turkey uh, and what they called Asia. So this city, Antioch, even though we haven't heard much of it, it's really our city. There's another reason why it's our city, and you can find that at the end of verse 26. It says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, New missionaries came, a new church formed, and as that happens, they get a new reputation and they're called Christians. This is where we got our name in this city. And it's a great name. It may have been given by people who didn't like Christians, uh, people who wanted to demean Christians. Think about it. Uh, we're talking about Jesus who died a humiliating death on a cross. Uh, so they may have actually been wanting to tease the Christians a little bit, but they could not have picked a better name because Christian or Christian, Christ person, really focuses our attention on the very centre of our faith. You can have all sorts of conversations with Muslims, you know, over hubbly-bubbly, you know, the water pipe and, and tea and coffee. I've had conversations about all sorts of things um, with Muslim people. Uh, you know, how the Jews control Hollywood and about ISIS and about uh, all kinds of different things, a lot of politics, but also just an ordinary life. Uh, I find that what, one thing I'm trying to do more and more is to bring them back to Jesus. I really want them to, I really want Jesus to be present in the conversation. He's the center of my faith, He's the one whose name I carry, and I really want Him to be the center or at least play a role in every conversation I have. I think that goes for, for non-Muslims as well. You know, we've got so many contentious issues in, in the media, don't we, and in our society at the moment. Things that are really hard to talk about and we've got a variety of views. Some feel very strongly, others not so strongly. I feel like it's, I find it very easy to engage with people about whatever the, the hot issue is without including Jesus. And actually, I want to try and bring him more and more into the conversations because he and his existence and his person and the gospel actually have an impact on everything in some way or other. And so I think having this name, even though it might have been meant as a kind of mocking thing early on, is a good reminder to us to keep him in our conversations with people who are not yet followers of Christ. So a new reputation is the third new thing that, this, uh, that happens as the gospel's preached, a church forms, they get a new reputation as Christians. And then finally, in the last few verses, in verses 27 to 30, a strange thing happens. There's this prophecy. Did you catch that? Uh, 
by His Spirit, God gave to the church at this time all sorts of um, what to us are quite strange gifts, healing, uh, prophecy, obviously speaking in tongues uh, so that people could understand the apostles in their own languages. Um, and s- prophets come down from Jerusalem, they spread out and start prophesying and this particular prophet, Agabus, tells the future. He tells them a word about what's going to happen in the future, um, which is a, that draws my attention. But actually, I think our attention isn't drawn so much in the flow of the story to the fact that there's a prophet who tells something about the future. Our attention is actually pointed on the result of his prophecy. So it says in uh, verse 28 that he predicted that there would be a famine across the entire Roman world and the response of this little Gentile church of new believers, the oldest of them in the faith, had probably only been Christian for a year or perhaps a little more, their response was to get money together, each according to his ability, give the money to Barnabas and Saul to take down to the brothers in Judea, in Jerusalem in the south, where they felt there would be a particularly acute problem because of this famine. So what's going on here? There's a group of new believers who are not Jewish getting together money to give to another group of believers who they've never met, their older brothers and sisters in the faith, to support them in a time of suffering that's coming. Now that is an incredible work of the Holy Spirit. These new believers recognise that they are joined with their older brothers and sisters in the faith. That's the fourth new thing that happens in Antioch. A new fellowship is born. Uh, Yasser, who I mentioned uh, earlier on, has become a good friend of ours. I visited him a couple of weeks ago, or last week, Uh, in his home. He lives uh, in Western Sydney in a very modest housing estate little place. Uh, And, uh, you know, I went in to pray with him and to see his place, which I hadn't seen before. And he said to me, he said, this might be a bit strange, Ben, but I'd like to do something for you as a way of serving you, if it's okay. Tell me if it's not. He said, I want to wash your feet. Now, no one's ever done that for me before. And it's a, it's a weird thing. You know, I, don't, I don't think there's any culture in the world that thinks washing another person's feet is, is a really normal thing. Um, certainly in Aussie culture, you're just not going to do that, are you? Two blokes washing each other's feet. Anyway, he, I said, okay, you know, because I knew what this meant you know i know the example of our lord jesus and he wanted to imitate jesus and do this as an act of service to me that's never happened to me before and that's what he did and he washed my feet and we prayed together and as he did that and as i like let him do that because actually it's it's a bit strange it became clear to me that this was that kind of deep fellowship You know, he and I are very different. We're from different countries. We grew up speaking different languages, different religions, right? But we have the same Lord, Jesus Christ. And that just transcends all of those other differences and joins us in a way that will 
last forever. It's never going to end. And I think that's what's happening here. That when the gospel's preached and people come to faith from whatever background, Muslim or pagan or whatever, they are joined with other believers uh, in a way that covers over all of those other differences and makes them irrelevant in the end. Uh, That was a very special thing and I'm really thankful for him doing that. Uh, I really love more Muslims to come to Christ from all sorts of backgrounds and my prayer is that as that happens we will enjoy that fellowship with them and be connected to them in that way that just is above all of our differences. Well, God does a new thing in this passage. That's why I chose it. Uh, The missionaries come, a new church forms, they get a new reputation, and then finally they enjoy this fellowship, even though they've never met, a fellowship of service. Uh, And I think there's a big challenge for us in this. I think it challenges us to have a big vision of what God's doing in the world. You may feel, if you see a Muslim woman all covered or a Muslim man with a thing and a beard who looks like a real... Um, you know, head kicker. You may think uh, that's really intimidating. Uh, I don't know how... You may not even think that they need to hear the gospel, let alone that they might respond in faith. But Yasser was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, he, you know, he really went deep into that stuff and there was nothing in it for him. He re- realised that and eventually came to Christ. Uh, but God is working in people's hearts And he's powerful to change people like he changed the Gentiles. And perhaps Muslims are a little bit like that for us. It's kind of hard for us to think what that might look like. And actually, if you read the research about Muslim gatherings of BMBs, believers from Muslim background, all around the world, Indonesia, Bangladesh, the Middle East, Iran, Africa, their gatherings often look quite different to what we're used to, quite different to our gatherings, but they're the real thing. And so my prayer is that we'll be open to what God's doing and not limited to our old patterns. And we mustn't be tribal when God does something new and reject something because it looks different to what we're used to. Uh, We pray that God will keep doing this new thing among Muslims. I mean, it's not new for him, right? God's been saving people for millennia. Uh, But we love him to do that through us and the others in our network and through you as you partner with us in Sydney. But of course it'll only happen, Muslims will only ever come to Christ the same as we did, which is by his work. So why don't we finish by praying and committing it to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we thank you for Yasser and for saving him. We thank you that his journey has ended after many years of searching in lots of different places because he's found Christ. We praise and thank you this morning, Father, for all the different ways that you've led each of us to faith in you. We pray, Father, that if there's any person here who isn't yet following Jesus, that you will lead them to that last part of their journey and that they'll find rest and peace and forgiveness and new life in him. Father, please save many, many more Muslim people hundreds of thousands, millions. And Father, as that happens, by the power of your Spirit, give us love for them. Help us see beyond the 
earthly differences of culture or tribe and embrace them as brothers and sisters. And Father, we thank you that we will be with you and them in eternity in perfection. We thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.